morning. My name is Vicki. I'm the women's director here, and so great to see you guys. If you guys are just like, hey, I can't really see super well because I'm all the way back there, feel free to move a little closer. Um, I promise you, this keeps all spit off of you. Um, anyway, we have been sitting in the book of Nehemiah. We've been in it for a week already. Good job, Thomas. Thank you. Um, and um, this is the second week that we're in it. We're going to be sitting in it and marinating in the book of Nehemiah together. And each week, we have something called a Nehemiah challenge. And the idea of it is that we wanted to make something that was um, applicable to what it is that we're learning. And the reason why application is so important is that we don't want to just be people who learn and deepen in our historical and theological understanding, right? We want to be people who actually do something about it. And when we do something with what it is that we're learning, um, God comes and transforms our hearts and our souls. And that's really what we long for, right? We don't want to come in here because we want a Bible class. We come in here because we want to be transformed by God. We want to be people who grow and are more like Jesus. And the way that that happens is when we apply the word. And so our prayer is that the Nehemiah challenge is going to be something that helps, propels you towards growth. And so last week, Dom talked about how the Nehemiah challenge is, it was twofold. One, that we would... Um, uh, pray about the brokenness in the world and um, see where we are responsible for it instead of being quick to blame. Um, the second thing that um, we were wanting to do and apply as a community was asking someone every day, how can I pray for you and praying for them? And so I don't know if you were able to apply it. We're also having a reminder on um, Instagram. Um, if you need a reminder on what we're doing with the Nehemiah Challenge. So every single week, I just want your ears to be ready and open for what the Nehemiah Challenge is. And, you know, extra points if you can guess what the Nehemiah Challenge is before someone announces it. Um, I mean, I don't know who you announce it to yourself. You give yourself extra points. Um, anyway, so last week, Nehemiah 1, we see that Nehemiah gets reports about the state of Israel. Um, Israelites are in exile in Babylon and have been for a long time. Nehemiah was born in Babylon, so he has never been to Jerusalem. But it is the place uh, where his, the identity of his people are, right? It is his homeland. It is um, where, where God has, has chosen to call his people. And so as they're in exile... Um, they're still connected to this homeland that they've never seen. And so when he's asking his brother what things look like in Jerusalem, he gets the report that things are really broken down and sad and burnt and, and that there's not a whole lot there. Um, the, so if you want a little bit more of the history of what had been happening at the point, please listen back to last week. Dom covered a lot of that. But he heard about that in the fall, and he's been sitting and grieving. Chapter 1 is him praying to God and, and, and being in pain and, and sorrow about what is true about his people, what is true about Jerusalem. And he's just sitting in that reality. And here we ch pick up in chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with me, um, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. It is the, after the book of Ezra um, in uh, verse 1 through 8. Or you can just look up and we have the, verse up there as, uh, the verses up there as well. In the month of Nisan, which is in mid-March, April, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now had not been sad in his presence... 
And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Uh, I think, okay. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So what we know about Nehemiah is that he is the cupbearer to the king. And what that means is that, you know, like, there were a lot of enemies of the king, and so there, it was a likelihood that his food could be poisoned. And so the cupbearer always tasted everything before it went to the king. He risked his life every day for the king. The king had to rely on trusting this cupbearer for his life, right? And so it was an honored and trusted position. But at the same time, Nehemiah was still a Jewish exile, right, with no real rights. So he, here he is in this honored and trusted position, right, as good as it gets. Like, this is the most powerful man in the world, and he is seated at his right hand, totally trusted. But he also understands, yeah, and still, I don't really have a lot of rights, right? So it is really uncommon that the king would ask him, hey, you look sad today. What's going on? right? Because he's the most powerful man in the world. He does not have to like think about anyone other than himself and what he desires for the day. But it is really uncommon that he would look at Nehemiah and be like, you seem sad. What's going on, right? And it says that Nehemiah has a very interesting response. It says that he's very much afraid. So you probably should read that and be like, that's weird. Um, That's weird that you respond in fear, right? But Nehemiah is afraid because he knows that the king is not a friend to the Jews. He knows that his position and his privilege can be lost if he even mentions his desire for the nation of Israel to be restored, much less ask for anything from the king, right? He has worked hard for where he is. No one is born into the role of cupbearer, right? You know that he has worked hard and shown that he is trustworthy to be able to be in this role. He is comfortable. He is respectable. He is working a pretty cush job. And that is the end goal, right? That is his retirement plan. So why throw it all away to do something that might totally fail? Why bring up something that the king does not care about and might, you know, just throw him in prison because it didn't it didn't please him to hear what was going on elsewhere in his kingdom, right? That was a thousand miles away. It is not his reality. It is not his problem. But he's also afraid, I think, because he has to say something. Have you ever been confronted with a situation where you're like, I need to say something, 
and it's terrifying to you, but your conviction to have to do something makes you terrified because you know you have to say something. You know, if he was like, I'm just not going to bring it up. I'm just going to lie that like, you know, like, you know, I was dating this girl and she broke up with me. That's why I'm sad, right? Like, but instead he's afraid because he knows he is compelled to say something and that's why he is afraid because he knows he's risking everything on the line to say it, but he cannot not say something. And by the way, 20 years before this interaction, there were some people that had gone to try and rebuild the wall in Israel. 20 years at the beginning of Artaxerxes' reign, there were a group of Jewish exiles that started rebuilding the wall to um, kind of bring the identity of God's people back. And the neighboring people, the neighboring officials heard about it, saw it, and they told the king and they said, hey, I think there's some people that want to revolt against you. I think they're gathering forces together and they're going to try and say, since you're a new king, we're going to take over. Which is crazy because if you looked at Jerusalem at the time, there was no way that was happening. But Artaxerxes, insecure in his new position as the new king, sent military there to burn down anything that they were doing. And so the desolation has actually was caused by Artaxerxes, made worse by Artaxerxes. Nehemiah knows that. Nehemiah knows the history. Nehemiah knows the king and that he was the one that made it worse. And so he's the one that Nehemiah has to go and say, hey, I'm super sad that this is what's going on in Jerusalem right now. And this is the king to which Nehemiah makes the request, right? And then, miracle upon miracles, the king says, so what do you request? So I hear that you're sad, so what do you want? And so it says that Nehemiah says a quick prayer to God. It doesn't say quick prayer, but I'm assuming that like it might be awkward for him to have a long prayer in his head at that very point, right, for communication purposes. So he probably sent a quick prayer to God, kind of like a, oh, help me God moment, before he begins to make his long list of requests. I wonder what has been happening from the time where he heard about what's happening in Israel to when he actually has this interaction with, uh, with the king. It had been five months. I wonder what had been happening for those five months where he sat from grieving to being this bold, confident person that risks everything before the king, right? I wonder what has been happening. He's been praying and he's been grieving, but I think he's been planning and trying to figure out what is he going to do? What does it look like for him to act and move instead of staying put and doing nothing and watching his people just be um, demolished and undignified, right? Because when the king asks, he has a very clear thought through response. He's not like, I don't know, and he's not, he's not riffing here, right? He's thought through this. He knows exactly what he needs to take action to rebuild the wall. And I think that here we... Um, I see a man who is making a very clear choice. Nelson Mandela says this, may your choices reflect your hopes, not your fears, right? In those five months, he had a choice. I can be praying and be separate at the same time, or I can be praying and lean into the hope and actually inform my actions because of it. Now, I don't want us to miss the miracle that Artie I'm going to just call him Artie, gives permission for Nehemiah to leave, but even more gives him supplies. He supplies him with an army to secure his passage. It's a four-month journey. It's a very dangerous journey, right, to get to Judah in time. Um, that he gives him, he basically sends him in his name and 
gives him passage through all these governors' lands, right? And what that means is that he's basically saying, yeah, they're going to shelter you. They're going to give you food. They're going to give you whatever supplies you need. It's like the king is sending me. I am going on behalf of the king to do his work. Um, that is the honor that is given to Nehemiah as he goes. And also, hey, by the way, can I get uh, timber from the best forest in the world in Lebanon? You know, like things that are reserved only for the king's projects. Can I get some of that lumber? So he gets the best timber in the world to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So you must be asking, why does Artaxerxes say yes? Right? The king that, re like beforehand, burnt down the wall, said, I don't want anything to do with the Israelites. They need to stay in exile. I need to be in power. Why does he act so generously to Nehemiah? How does he go from a king who tears down any efforts to rebuild to becoming a king that gives the best lumber in his military to help his cupbearer restore Jerusalem? What is happening, right? We see an example of a divine appointment here where God sets up a situation that creates opportunity for his will to move ahead. Now, Nehemiah and the king see each other every day, but without the king initiating real conversation, Nehemiah would never have been able to ask to be released from his service and do this thing that God has been inviting him to do in restoration. God needed to set that up. God needed to set that up. God, you know, usually in divine appointments, God is softening the heart of the other person, but also he's just setting up different things that by the time um, that per God's person is in interaction with this other person, he is set up to do the ask, right? So. There's an interesting, um, there's, there's some theologians and commentators that talk about how Esther. Now, Esther is a book after Nehemiah, but historically, chronologically, it happens before Nehemiah. And so, you know, the story of Esther is that she is, she's Jewish and she's beautiful and basically the king wants to marry her. And she uses her position and her power to um, save her people. Right? That's a very basic outline of Esther. But it says that once that happened, there were a group of Jewish people that went back to Jerusalem, but Esther stayed. And she didn't have to. And she was married to Artaxerxes' dad. But she was a contemporary with Nehemiah. And there was an understanding that she knew Nehemiah, and Nehemiah knew her, and Esther stayed to influence the Persian court at that time. And I wonder right, if Esther's presence and Esther's influence in her position actually changed some of the um, thoughts and the power that was going on with Artaxerxes at the same time. When God is working and God is orchestrating stuff, we don't know what is happening behind the curtain. All Nehemiah knew was that he had to ask and he had to be faithful with what he was given, right? That in his position and in his privilege, he had to go ahead and take the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity of answering the king when the king was asking him how he was doing and, and what he wanted. But he had no idea what was going on in the backdrop, right? And I think that there are times where God is still doing that today. God is still setting up divine appointments. And we have opportunities to, take, to, to say something or to, to use our position and our privilege to advocate on behalf of someone. And I wonder if we miss those divine opportunities 
and those divine appointments because we're not looking for them. Or we just think, oh, I'm the first person to come in and I don't want to take that risk. That feels really awkward. I don't want to enter into that conversation. And yet God has already been working for years and years to set up this one interaction between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes. So I just want you to think about that. I wonder what divine appointments God is setting up for me. Conversations with a coworker opportunities that I would never have had except that God is just suddenly my neighbor decided to share this thing with me, right? Didn't know where that was coming from, but here's an opportunity that's placed before me. So here's what happens next. Nehemiah has the good hand of favor of God. He goes to Judah safely because he has the whole military before him, um, and he does a survey of the wall, right? He has heard reports, he knows the history, but he has never been there. And so he decides to actually, with boots on the ground, walk the, circumfer- like the whole um, length of the walls to see what the desolation really is like, where you know, they need to completely rebuild and where they need to just repair. And he does this for several times and several nights. And he does it at night because he, he doesn't tell anybody the vision or the plan of why he's there. Because you know what? He's an outsider. People look at him and they're like, you've got clean clothes on, your hands are soft, you know, like you haven't worked a day of labor, you know, like you have a nice haircut, you're well fed. I don't know if you know what you're asking for here. They do not need a naive cheerleader. They need someone who knows how devastated the city is, how exhausted and helpless they are, and how great the ruin of the wall of Jerusalem. They need someone who is sober about the work, who is resourceful with what they need, right? They don't need someone who's like, I think this is a great idea, let's do it, and have no idea really what they're in for and then bail before the thing gets done because it was too big of a project, right? He needs to earn some credibility. And when he feels like he knows what it is that he is in for, he invites the officials and, and the people there and say, let's rebuild the wall. Let me tell you my conversations with Artaxerxes the king. Let me tell you what he sent and given us. He has given us permission to do it. It is in the king's name. We have the best lumber. Let's do it. And people say, okay, let's rebuild the wall. But it never happens without haters on the side making comments, right? So we meet Sambalat the Heronite and his sidekick Dabiah the Abanite and Geshem the Arab. I don't know why it's always in groups of three, like bullies. It's always like groups of three. And Bernstein bears and like, all, like they're always in groups of three. There's one main bully and then two sidekicks, right? Or Luca or whatever. Anyway, so Sambalat, they're, they're neighboring officials. They're people who are on like... around Jerusalem and they see that they're trying to rebuild and they're like what's it you're doing are you rebelling against the king and you know what I I don't know if they were the ones that tipped the king off 20 years ago but they know that when they say that it should instill a fear in the Israelites because they all know this is what started the king sending the military to come and burn down any efforts that we made and that should terrify them enough to step back and say, no, we're not doing anything here. But Nehemiah's like, please, I'm ready for you. I talked to the king himself. He sent me, right? But he doesn't say that. He doesn't, he doesn't say that because 
He, instead, what he says is, listen, this is God's work, right? He says, the God of heaven will give us success. He doesn't say, King Artaxerxes sent me, so ha, 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 right? And I think that that's because Nehemiah knows where the power of the mission is. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter that King Artaxerxes gave his permission and his honor to it. He knows that it is God that has sent him and that it is going to be God that fuels this mission. Although he did check with the king and he knows that it's not going to go in that place, right? But there are always going to be Sambalats who tear you down, who are critical, who see all that is wrong, right? When you do something, when you are trying to build something up, there's always going to be someone who tells you to settle for less, that this is not worth your time and, and you're, you're going to fail anyway, right? That is, that is just the nature of how things work. There are always going to be haters, right? And yet Nehemiah is prepared for haters. He knows that they're coming, and it's not that he's just prepared because he's talked to the king, but he spent five months in prayer, and he feels confident about the call that God has for him and for his people. And that's why he says, you can talk all you want. We're going to do this. You're not going to stop us. Now, my husband, Birch, does property management, and he doesn't do it in the normal way. He rents, rooms by, uh, he rents by the room instead of the house because his mission is to create community houses. You know, in a day and age where people are having a hard time having connection and depth, um, we found that people long for community, but they don't know how to build it and sustain it. So both Birch and I, when we were in college and also after college, we've lived in community houses, and we've just loved our experiences there. We've just grown a lot, right? We've grown in being people of authenticity, accountability, humility. Oh man, when you have to share everything with everybody else and have to deal with whose dishes are in the sink and that's your day in and day out, the Lord grows you, you know? And so we just had really great growing experiences in that. We wanted to create that. Um, <clears throat> so that's the kind of unique work that he does. And as you can imagine, that brings on its drama and complexity, right? You can't just throw someone in there because that one person affects everybody else who's living there. You have had, we have had experiences where he's taken on someone who isn't necessarily a great fit, who isn't very mature, more abrasive or whatever, and has tanked the entire house community. We had one situation where one or two toxic people moved in and it had caused 11 people to move out. It can be messy, right? People living together, even when it's just your family, can sometimes make you want to move out, right? So imagine strangers or people that are not committed to each other um, having to work things out. But we have also seen people come to know the love of Jesus through others persevering with them and modeling the daily walk of God. We have seen people become healthy from traumatic experiences and broken homes. And we've seen people grow into lifelong friendships, choosing to live together or even long after they move out, having families, choosing to move into the same neighborhoods. So in the last couple of years, we've been in communication with one of our previous community members who was having a really rough time in life. He had thought that he was finally settling down about you know, four years ago when he got married to this great gal and, um, and they, they got pregnant. Um, 
he was having a hard time keeping a job. She became the breadwinner, and then they had the baby. There was just some, you know, typical pressures and strains on their relationship, but then the baby came, and it just kind of compounded everything, and she decided to leave him with the baby, or she decided to leave him by himself and took the baby with her. Right around then, um, the pandemic hit. He was in a huge, deep depression. He had been struggling with it for years and was on meds and wasn't very good about staying on them. Um, he was without a job, without his wife and kid. He had burnt a lot of trust with people around him. Um, and he squatted in his apartment and couldn't take care of himself, right? He decided not to be on meds. He gained a lot of weight. He stayed indoors. He was just in a really dark place. But at least he had his apartment because of the eviction moratorium. And Birch would go and check on him every once in a while, and he would just say, I just haven't seen or talked to anyone for months. You know, you're the first person I've talked to. It was just heartbreaking to see. And then recently, he got notice that he was getting evicted, right? Because the moratorium ended. And he was so overwhelmed with everything because he was surrounded by a life that he failed, right? There was his wedding album. There was a crib that his baby wasn't in anymore. Clothes that he didn't fit now because they had moved out a while ago. All these things of a life that was no longer his life. And he was supposed to move all that stuff, right? So he was just so, so overwhelmed. He needed a fresh start. But he had no money, no credibility, no support system. He asked Birch if he could live in one of our community houses. And Birch told him, if you got a job, if you stayed on your meds, if you started restoring some of these relationships, then he would rent a room to him. And that's what he needed to get going. He got a job, and Birch helped him move his stuff out and take a load to Goodwill and help him clear out everything. And that's when I found out what was going on because I saw his truck full of things. And I was like, why do you have a truck full of things? Who's, whose things are these? And so I had known this man's journey and how li hard life had been. I knew his wife and the people around him. I knew that they had to draw some serious boundaries for theirs and his health. So when I heard that Birch was going to let this guy into one of the community houses, I was not happy. This conversation happened when we were getting ready for bed, as all productive conversations start. As you know, I had seen people make promises they can't keep. And no, this is not going to happen, right? We have learned too much for me to allow this to happen, right? And I wanted to make sure that he knew that. Birch assured me that he was in conversation with two of the housemates and that they knew what they were getting into and they were going to hold him accountable to stuff. And I just reminded Birch, like, this is not just your risk to take. This is the housemates' risks. This is our risk, right? Did I get a say in the matter? What happens when this guy loses his job and can't pay his rent? What happens if he tanks the whole community and we lose rent for eight tenants, not just one? Who gets to deal with a super stressed Birch who's not around working overtime trying to fill up this house while I take care of the kids? And yeah, he's rushing to get eight rooms filled. Who pays the cost of your risk? It went back and forth. We were both mad, defensive, protective. You can imagine what that conversation looked like. 
But at some point, Birch's has said this, yes, we might lose a bit of money here, but we will be fine. We will still have a roof over our heads. He will not. He is a step away from homelessness, like all the homeless people we see every single day. And I had a chance to do something about it and potentially give him the fresh start that he needed. So yeah, I took the risk. Because we have been given this role, these resources, these rooms and communities to steward. And I can protect and stay safe and turn a blind eye to all the needs and all the people, or I can do something, even if it doesn't seem like the best, wisest idea. I am doing my best here, and I have my soul to protect and a God to keep accountable to. I was still mad, but he was right. I don't like to tell him that. But the risk for people is always worth taking. He could have done it differently. He could have told me and invited me into the process so I didn't have to find out with a full truck, right? But at the end of the day, I will always instinctively self-protect my family and protect from extra drama, stress, and suffering. That is where I will instinctively go because I am instinctively a selfish person. We have a lot to learn, but he's right. We can't live protecting what is ours and not do anything with what we've been given. Or do some when it's safe, but when it's really risky, let's not do that. That doesn't feel wise, right? I don't want to be calcified by life experiences and fear and protection and call that wisdom. I don't want to be calcified by life experiences and call that wisdom. Because what God, what the world calls foolish, God is called wise, right? I don't want to be someone who lives in fear, but I want to hope, right, for me and for others. I want to be a Nehemiah who builds up and not a Sambalot who tears down and sees all that is wrong with the situation. It was very interesting, right, in my conversation with Birch. Birch was like, but what if, what if? And I'm like, yeah, what if? What if? And he was saying all the things that could be good out of this risk. And I was telling him all the things that could go wrong. And even though I think that both are important, at the end of the day, right, I get to choose, am I going to be a Nehemiah or am I going to be a Sambalat? Birch is a mirror to me. There are relationships that we have that are real and authentic and challenging do you have those relationships where those people hold a mirror to you? And we can either look and be teachable and confess and move forward, or we can hear those people and see that mirror, and we can be defensive and mad at the person and shut them out. How dare they judge me? How dare they say that to me? Right? I hope we have all, all have people who are willing to challenge us and say the things that are hard and our mirrors to us to show us what we really look like so that we can change. I'm so grateful for Birch, even though probably half the time I'm really mad at him. But, you know, part of it is the anger that I feel is because I'm like, oh, he's convicting me right now, and it's painful, and it's hard, but I know that it is the right thing to do. I hope that we all have people like that who propel us to grow and not be stuck. And I hope that we come to church expecting the word to be a mirror to us 
so that it would show us what we look like and challenge us to move forward and grow and change. So here's the Nehemiah challenge today. What step can you take? What step can you take towards using what you have to restore something broken? So for some of us, it just looks like I need to sit and grieve this thing that I've been seeing that is broken. A friend's story, a bigger world issue, something that is going on on my campus. I, I want to sit in it, but not just grieve in it, because sometimes we're pretty good at just being like, oh, that's just hard. But instead to lift it up to God and say, God, I, I want to see this changed. And ask for an opportunity to be part of that change, to move in that direction in some way. Because that's what Nehemiah was asking for. And then he got that divine appointment. He got that opportunity to do something about it. Right? So that first step is maybe just sitting and inviting God to give you the opportunity. And for some of us, it is to survey the wall. Right? I know that there are so much on my newsfeed that I don't even... I don't know if I can sit and read the story because I'm like, listen, the picture and the headline was pretty much enough for me. And then sometimes I feel like I know the story because I read the headline and the picture. I know what's going on, and yet I don't because there's a lot of information in a story. That's why there are journalists and not just photojournalists, right? Like um, that I need to survey the wall and figure out what is going on. I need to learn and educate myself on what it is that is broken in the world. And just choose one thing that has been sitting on your heart. Like, I'm going to choose this week. I'm going to take that step and, and figure out, like, what is going on? What is going on in downtown Portland? What have they tried? And what are they planning on doing? And what is going on? How do I need to be praying? Let me have my boots on the ground and see what is going on. Right? And then for some of us, it is that we need to act. We need to do something. We need to advocate. We need to um, give money to something. We need to go in there and change something. We are in positions not because God just put us there so that we can just benefit from it. We are not the end of the positions and the jobs and the whatever that we're in. We're in those places because God wants to give us access and avenue to advocate and bring change to these places and claim God's place in those places. And so for us to ask, what does it look like for me to bring more of God's kingdom here? What does it look like for me to advocate for someone who doesn't have a voice here? What does it look like for me to change policy and culture in a place that does not reflect God right now here? What does it look like for me to get into a hard conversation that might be very risky for me? Because I know God is inviting me into that conversation. And for some of us, we need to explore that. And for some of us, we know exactly what it is that we need to do. And we've been putting it off because it is uncomfortable, it is hard, it is risky. And we are just in a gathering phase. And we've gathered enough. You know what you need to do. There is not more research and gathering that you need to do. You just need to go and do it. Right? So whether or not you are in just the, I need, those, I need to sit in this, I need to pray, I need to ask God for opportunity, surveying the wall, or advocating and acting, I want us to take a step. And that step could be small, that step could be big, but I want us to take a step in this direction. Amen? Now there's no way that we could do this without Jesus. 
right? This morning, we are celebrating the sacrament of communion. And the com communion reminds us of two things. First, it reminds us that we are broken in a broken world, and we need Jesus. It is impossible if I were just to say, hey, we need to do more good in the world. In this, wherever you see brokenness, bring change. Because you know what? We're broken. When broken people bring change to a broken system, unfortunately, we just bring more brokenness in some way, right? That's why we need Jesus. We need Jesus to kind of bring change that is going to last, that goes beyond our own brokenness. So one is when we celebrate communion and when we celebrate that Jesus died on the cross, that he broke his body and spilt his blood for us as we take the bread and the wine, we are saying, Jesus, I am broken, and you're the only way to, to save me. But secondly, we are saying that we are remembering that Jesus had the privilege and the position and he was sitting on the right hand of the Father, and he gave that up. He risked everything to come and make a way for us, to give us access to the Father so that we would be made right, so that we would be restored. He saw us and saw the broken places, and he came and he said, I will risk everything and come and rebuild here. And I'm going to rebuild something that will last, that will never be able to be burnt down, that will never be able to be torn down by powers and kings, right? That will always stay true as long as you come to me. And so when we come today and we take communion, it is also acknowledging that this is what God did. And he makes things right and he brings restoration, not just in the places in our world, but inside in us where we feel conflict and we feel brokenness and we feel defensive, right? God comes and brings, brings restoration and makes it right. So Kelly's going to lead us into um, some worship and, and then into some um, directions about communion. But let me just go ahead and pray for us real quick. God, we thank you for Nehemiah. We thank you for his courage. We thank you for his steadfastness in your call even when there was so much at risk, even when he had not seen other people do it, even when he knew that it was likely going to fail, he did it anyway because it was what you called him to. It was the right thing to do. And so, God, I pray that we would have that tenacity that Nehemiah has, that we would have the, the, the courage that he would have, God. And I pray for divine appointments. I pray for people that gives us access into places that we would not be able to have access into, to, to have the resources to do the things that we wouldn't have been able to do on our own. God, you want to bring change in our city and in our world, and God, you want to use us. And so we pray that we would take a step towards you. Pray this in your name. Amen.